What's going on, folks? And welcome to another episode of Thoroughbred Teamsters Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Rich from Northern California's Local 315. Finally did it. Finally, finally finished this episode. And you know what I think it was? Um, This is going to be the historic strike episode. Obviously, it's titled The Pullman Strike. I think it's because since it wasn't an actual school assignment and I didn't have an actual deadline, it was really my own self-imposed deadline. I just wasn't pushing myself hard enough to do it. Um, so, you know, after I finished last week, uh, the last episode, I think I said I was going to get on it, and it still took me about a day or two to, to hop back on it. But, you know, I, I knocked it out. I spent about a total of maybe about five hours on this episode, researching it, you know, writing it out. I'm really proud of the work I did. I did use two sources for this. You know, always got to give credit to the sources. I used the online version of Britannica, you know, the encyclopedia, not Wikipedia. I don't, I don't, I've mentioned before, I don't use Wikipedia for, for sourcing. Um, it's not that it's, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's open source. Anyone can change it, anything at any time. So I, 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 you know, it's good for a quick reference on something you're not doing officially, official work on, but you know, if I, I want to be accurate with this, I, I want to go with something a little bit more reliable. And I also used uh, the book that I used um, in some of the earlier strike episodes. It was uh, by Eric Loomis, and it's called A History of America and Ten Strikes. And there's only a few pages on this strike in the book, but I was still able to take a couple notes out of it. So, um, you know, always reference your work, cite your work. Those are the two sources I used. And, um, you know, again, I put, I put a lot of hard work into this. So you have any feedback you like it you think it could have been done better uh what is it missing what you know anything feel free to hit me up you know where to hit me up on twitter at norcal tingster all one word n-o-r-c-a-l-t-e-a-m-s-t-e-r uh hit me up on facebook thoroughbred teamsters podcast go ahead and space that all out instagram thoroughbred teamsters podcast or if you're long-winded like i can be thoroughbred teamster at hotmail.com all one word Uh, So let's go ahead and get this one started. In the mid-1800s, the American railroad system was was rapidly expanding. Um, You know, and this guy, George Pullman, uh, he inherited his family business of jacking up buildings and entire city blocks and, and, you know, to above expected flood levels in both New York and then to Chicago. And, you know, for some reason, which wasn't real clear to me in my research, but he decided he wanted to manufacture and lease railroad cars where he saw this potential and growth for his new business. Now, although the railways were mainly for transport of raw materials and finished goods, passenger travel was somewhat of a new concept. Uh, While the experience lacked comfort and proper ventilation, you know, kind of some key things you want when you're traveling, uh, Pullman saw potential in creating not only a comfortable sleeper car, but a luxurious model that many believed would not be successful. And uh, they were wrong. The, the new sleeper cars, uh, the Pullman sleeper cars, which were actually just refurbished cast-off cars. So, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, cars that the railways were kind of like, you know, we're kind of done with this car or, you know, we don't really use this one much. He, he, he refurbished them. Um, 
you know, they de debuted in the, the mid to, you know, about 1859, and, and by the 1870s, they were highly sought after by the railroad companies and travelers. So, I mean, you know, the travelers with the money, uh, they, they really bought into this and they really liked what they saw. But, but we got to remember, at this point in time, a steamboat cabin was really considered the most luxurious way to travel. But these new sleeper cars quickly challenged that. George Pullman eventually created newer and various models of not only the sleepers, but other types of rail cars. You know, over the years to the point where by 1879, the company had 464 cars for lease. They grossed 2.2 million annually and net 1 million annually. And by the 1890s, it had a capitalization of more than 36 million. So in 1879, he began planning to build his own town, uh, and he was gonna, it was called Pullman in Illinois. Uh, in 1880, he purchased 4,000 acres 12 miles south of Chicago to build it near his factory. Uh, it was a company town. Uh, this was completed in 1889. It had 1,300 original structures such as housing, shopping areas, theaters, churches, parks, a library, and even a man-made lake. Uh, it also had an administration building and a hotel. And I I believe that administration building kind of served in lieu of a city council. I mean, since it was his town, really. And I, there was some sort of way where it really wasn't like a city. Um, you know, the legalities of it and everything. He ran the town. He pretty much had his 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 people, his his administration of his company run the town as well. He ran the town like a business. Um, and we'll, we'll get a little bit more into that right now. Nearly 13,000 people lived in Pullman, uh, 5,000 workers and their dependents. And, and since it was his town, he had to say who could live there and who couldn't. And also what types of businesses could do, could operate in it. You know, therefore, his town had no labor agitators, no saloons, no red light districts, which I didn't even know was like really a thing until I started doing my research on this. You know, he wouldn't allow anything that could disrupt a happy and loyal workforce. Um, he also imposed a curfew, strict sanitary regulations and limits on use of tobacco. The town was full of spies and informants to make sure residents were on the up and up. One worker stated, We are born in the Pullman house, fed from the Pullman shop, taught in the Pullman school, catechized in the Pullman church, and when we die we shall be buried in the Pullman cemetery and go to the Pullman hell. End quote. Now, while this all sounds, you know, good and dandy, um, Britannica says this about Pullman, quote, What enthusiasts failed to see was that Pullman was little more than a company town and that George Pullman ruled it like a feudal lord, end quote. Uh, the housing reflected the social hierarchy. You know, the freestanding homes were for the execs, uh, row houses for the skilled or, or least senior workers, uh, the tenements for the unskilled, rooming houses for common laborers um you know so so there was a class structure in there as well you know um according to 
your status in the company. The housing, oh, hold on, did that. What was prohibited? Independent newspapers, uh, whew, public speeches, town meetings, or open discussion. That was all prohibited. God forbid you have your own independence of, uh, of your way of thinking or consuming information. There were weekly inspections of homes and leases, and those could be terminated on 10 days notice. While rent was considered high at $14 per month, the living conditions were better than non-Pullman housing. But is it worth the cost? You're, everything that you're giving up that I just named right there, at that time, is it worth it? I mean, you are pretty much living to work and working to live. I mean, it's a cycle. It's not even like either or. You are like, like that's what you're doing. You're, you're, everything you're doing Every, everything you're earning is going into that man's pocket right there. Uh, and you know what? It's, it, it technically is still kind of going on to this day, you know, if you, if you do your research. But um, I won't get into that right now. For what it's worth, the workers weren't mandated to live in the town, but they were strongly encouraged to. On paydays, for his workers who lived in his company town, he would issue two checks. One for the rent, which would be immediately signed over to the rent collector. And the second check would be what was left over after paying rent and any other cost. Make no mistake, this town was designed to be a moneymaker. And by 1892, it had a valuation of over $5 million. Okay, so so that was... We're, we're going to get into the strike itself now. This was just to give a little background on the on the wealthy businessman that everyone, you know, is taking their issue with, and the company town, which you know, kind of plays a part in this as well. Uh, you know, so so let's continue now with you know the days leading up to the strike. You see, in, in 1893, uh, an economic depression known as the Panic of 1893 had hit the country. And Pullman's rail car company was not immune to it. Uh, this caused Pullman to cut jobs and wages uh, by 25% while increasing working hours. And he expected the workers to just accept it with no quarrels. His, his objective was to lower costs at the expense of his employees and yet did not reduce dividends he owed to his stockholders. Surprise, surprise. As for his workers who lived in the town of Pullman... The cost to live was not adjusted. So bam, 25% off the back for their wages, but their rent stayed the same. All the costs stayed the same, not just the rent. Everything stayed the same. Not for rent, goods, or utilities. In fact, the wages left over from after rent collection was barely manageable even during the profitable years, let alone the panic years. During the panic, there wasn't much of anything left, causing workers and their families to face starvation. Now at this point, the workers became desperate and soon began to seek support from the American Railway Union. Uh, and after several workers tried to meet with Pullman about their grievances, about the low wages, poor living conditions, and 16-hour workdays, they were fired. On May 11, 1894, the Pullman workers took a vote and went on strike soon after seeking help from the ARU. 
of which 35% of Pullman's workers were represented by, and Eugene Debs, ARU's leader, ARU's leader and founder of the newly organized union. Uh, and, and just want to note this, at the time that this was going on, this was an all-whites union. Uh, it wasn't clear if it was so much Deb's position on it or if he was just reading the room. Um, but, you know, again, this is a, a heavy time with, uh, you know, racial inequality and, and, and everything being separate and, and, and discrimination running rampant. So um, I do just want to make that a note there that kind of did lead to problems. And I, I, I do believe kind of played a part in their, um, you know, failure down the road to when, when you can have solidarity, solidarity across, you know, the racial divide, then, you know, you're just setting yourself up for failure down the road. So, but I did just want to put that note. It really doesn't have anything to do with this story. Um, it was just nice and uh, a nice note to add, but technically the ARU wasn't involved in this vote to strike process. Um, but its officials were in, were in Pullman and present at the meeting where the vote was taken. The workers had no doubt that the ARU would support them, and when ARU's convention took place in Chicago in June for its first annual convention, the strike at Pullman was a topic of discussion. Now, the union sympathized with the strikers, who were seen as common working folk working for a tyrant, but the challenge for the ARU was trying to figure out how they could support the strikers since they technically didn't work on the railroads. Again, they, they built the rail cars, um, you know, basically turned, refurbished them, turned them into to, to lavish rail cars. Um, so they weren't actually rail workers, uh, a distinct difference. Ultimately, a motion was passed by the delegates to boycott. The idea behind this boycott was to boycott all Pullman cars on the railroads or any trains even pulling a Pullman car unless they stop doing business with the Pullman company altogether. Now, that's a pretty dope strategy right there. The union made every opportunity for this boycott to be avoided if the company agreed to submit the dispute to arbitration by June 26th. I mean, all this is happening within, uh, within days, within weeks. Between those few days, Several committees went to meet with company officials with hopes of avoiding the boycott by getting to the company to agree to their demands, but they were turned away each time. In order for this boycott to succeed, they would need the railroad switchmen on board with this, and fortunately, fortunately for the strikers and the ARU, the switchmen had joined the union in large numbers. Uh, just to note what a switchman is, uh, a railroad switchman is is to break up and build trains basically in the yard. Uh, cars arrive in a yard on trains where trains may be completely broken up or large amounts of cars may be removed. The cars that are removed, whether it be part of a train or the whole train, must be sorted to go on the outbound trains. A switchman uses the tracks in the yard to organize and process all the cars that come into the yard. The president of ARU, Eugene Debs, took a gamble by assuming that once the switchmen refused to add or remove the Pullman cars from the trains, they would immediately be fired by the railroad companies. I mean, so he, 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 he took a gamble. Part of his plan was assuming that the switchmen were going to be fired for refusing to touch the Pullman cars. He then figured the companies would hire non-union workers as replacements, which would lead to a mass exodus exodus 
of the other union members by walking out in solidarity for their switchman brethren. This would then shut down more of the railroad operations because this would cause the yard to be shut down completely. Now, with all this needing to fall into place, and that's, that's kind of a lot, you know, um, he guessed correctly. Um, what he predicted and what he needed to happen, it happened. One day after the company turned away the final committee sent by the union, 5,000 workers walked off the job, affecting 15 lines. The day after, 40,000 more had walked off, jamming up all rails west of Chicago. By the third day, there were 100,000 strikers that stopped 20 lines, and by June 30th, 125,000 strikers total affecting 29 lines who had quit their jobs to stand in solidarity with the Pullman workers. Now another note is the ARU's presence was not strong enough in the east or the deep south to, to get their support, so that support was obviously lacking. Um, other than that, the strategy was effective everywhere else. Although the plan was going accordingly those first few days, Debs unexpectedly experienced anger from the strikers and was afraid this could lead to violence. He would send hundreds of telegrams every day to the ARU locals, urging them to stay calm and to not overreact. But a few days into the strike, Debs spoke to a large and peaceful crowd in Illinois looking to build support from fellow railroad workers. The gathering had been peaceful, but after Debs left, many in the crowd became so angry that they began to set fire to buildings and derailed a locomotive, which, man, I don't, <laughs> I can't even imagine that, but, um, which was unfortunately attached to a U.S. mail train. Now that's, that's where the line was crossed. This not only caught the attention of the President of the United States, Grover Cleveland, but it also stopped the federal government from delivering the mail which was highly critical at this time in our country's history, since mail and the transportation of it was, was really the newest and fastest method of communication. And um, this, this, kinda, this was pretty vital to our nation's economy. By this point, the ARU members were either on strike or actively supporting the strike, along with support from other unions. Wildcat strikes. Um, now, I'm sure most of us know what wildcat strikes are. I've never been a part of one, uh, never been a part of a, uh, uh, an actual strike either. But, you know, just to clarify, a wildcat strike is a work stoppage started by employees without the, the consent of their respective unions. Uh, these strikes aren't necessarily illegal, um, but they often do violate terms of a, of a collective bargaining agreement. Uh, there, there, I know for our contract, uh, in our contract, you can't have a wildcat strike. So, the, the, and, and the name is based on the stereotypical characteristics associated with wildcats because they are unpredictable and uncontrollable. So, um, the strike was beginning to get out of hand and ARU's leaders and Eugene Debs did his best to caution his strikers to use restraint, but it was too late. The sheriffs in two nearby counties communicated to Illinois' governor that the strike was becoming uncontrollable. So the governor sent six companies of militia in early July to one town and three more militia to another. The militiamen were ordered to forcibly put an end to the strike and to clear the paths for the trains. 
At this point, the federal government had already put into motion that federal troops be sent to Chicago to end the, quote, reign of terror. And on July 2nd, an injunction from two judges with very anti-labor views prohibited all of the union's leaders to not only stop leading the strike, but now they were not allowed to even communicate with the strikers. Typically, an injunction levies fines for noncompliance, which in turn can add up to a point of bankrupting a union. Now that the injunction was issued, the strike was now a federal issue, and on July 3rd, federal troops were officially ordered into Chicago. Illinois' governor was, uh, he, he was pretty pissed off because he believed with his teams of militiamen, they were highly capable of handling the strike without the government's help. Unfortunately, Debs believed he no longer had control over the strikers because of the injunction, but welcomed the troops. Why? Because he initially thought the strikers would benefit from their presence, allowing the strikers to peacefully continue their protest and boycott while the federal troops maintained order. It soon became evident to Debs that the troops were there for the sole purpose of making sure those trains moved, which would inevitably undermine the boycott. The strikers became furious once they saw the troops, and on July 4th, them and their supporters began overturning rail cars and set up barricades so the troops couldn't enter the yards. And because of the injunction, the union's leaders couldn't communicate anything to their workers. I mean, they were on their own. On July 6th, about 6,000 strikers destroyed hundreds of rail cars in Chicago's yards. Not even the 6,000 federal and state troops, the 3,100 police, and the 5,000 deputy marshals in the city combined could not control the situation. On July 7th, an assault on National Guardsmen caused them to fire into the crowd, killing between 4 and 40 people while wounding many others. Debs tried to call off the strike and urged that all those who have not been convicted of crimes be rehired. But the companies refused and instead began hiring non-union workers. Eventually the strike slowly died down over the upcoming days and soon the trains began to move as scheduled. <sighs> Sounds like defeat. By July 20th, the federal troops were recalled and by August 2nd, the Pullman Company agreed to rehire the striking workers only if they pledged to never join a union. Uh, Ultimately, the strike cost the railroads millions of dollars in lost revenue and damages, and the strikers lost over a million dollars in wages. Also lost was the sympathy from the public the strikers had, which is brutal. Um, if you don't have the public support in a strike, you're already, you're already losing. Over 250,000 workers in 27 straight states had went on strike which stopped rail traffic and even caused riots elsewhere. In the end, 13 strikers were killed with 57 wounded. With the strike now over, now came um, the courts. So, you know, I'm just going to briefly, briefly go over, you know, what happened, the aftermath of, you know, the court cases. So, um, Eugene Debs and four other leaders were arrested on July 7th during the peak of the violence for contempt of court. Uh, for violating the injunction, basically, and for criminal conspiracy to interfere with the U.S. mail. 
but were soon released on bond. At the end of the year, they were tried and convicted of the contempt charge with the conspiracy charge being withdrawn. So they, so they withdrew the, the uh, tampering with the U.S. mail. They were sentenced, uh, their sentences varied from three to six months. They appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, but the unanimous decision went nine and zero, and the court obviously went against Debs and his co-defendants. In June of 1895, the men turned themselves into an Illinois County jail to begin serving their sentence. Debs served six months and after his release, soon became a co-founding member, member of the Industrial Workers of the World, AKA the Wobblies, and had sought a career as a socialist and a political activist. Now you might be asking yourself, so that's it? We lost? And unfortunately, yes, we lost. Um, you see, you know, I'm gonna quote Botanica with this, you know, closing this out. You know, what was the significance of all this? Quote, by involving as many as 250,000 railroad workers on some 20 railroads, the Pullman strike demonstrated the power of the labor movement. However, in precipitating the use of an injunction to break the strike, it opened the door to greater court involvement in limiting the effectiveness of strikes, to which we still feel to this day. The event also established a greater role for federal government intervention in strikes and introduced the use of the federal military in addressing strikes. The violence that resulted from the strike also temporarily reduced public support for the labor movement. So there it is, folks, the Pullman strike. Um, you know, be before I close this one out, I do have two interesting little nuggets, um, just kind of interesting facts that really didn't fit anywhere in the story um, that I'm just gonna close out with. Uh, first one is, so after, the rich dude, George Pullman, after his death in 1897, which was only a few years after the strike ended, uh, or after the strike period, he was buried at night in a lead-lined coffin with an elaborately reinforced steel and concrete vault. And then, several tons of cement were poured over to prevent his body from being exhumed and desecrated by labor activists. Man. <laughs> That's, uh, that's interesting. Uh, again, I just find that a little interesting nugget. Um, second nugget, and and uh, my buddy uh, on Twitter, Zach Flash, he hit me up on this one. Uh, hit him up. He's, he's doing solid work, always putting in work. And I think he mentioned um, there was, uh, you know, it was kind of, they had all the paint left over from their rail cars, so... UPS somehow came in contact with them. I couldn't really verify that. Sorry, Zach, but I was able to somewhat verify from, you know, no official source or nothing, but, you know, I spent a few minutes looking for it on the internet, and I did find that the brown color that UPS uses on its vehicles and uniforms is called Pullman Brown. Um, originally, the founder, James E. Casey, wanted the trucks to be yellow, but one of his partners, Charlie Soderstrom, stated that would be impossible to keep clean 
and that Pullman Railroad cars were brown just for that reason. So that's my final nugget. Um, hope you all appreciated this episode. I put a lot of work into this. Um, you know, hopefully I can get another episode up soon. I'm not even telling you guys when I'm putting episodes up anymore because I seem to have a bad case of, of not staying true to my word on that. But um, I do have one planned. <laughs> and as I say, I'm not going to tell you when I have one. I'm Here I am telling you I have one. But anyways, uh, stay tuned. Check it out. Hit me up. Let me know what you think. I know a lot of people like the history episodes. Um, let's see. Hit me up. Twitter. At NorCal Teamster, all one word, N-O-R-C-A-L-T-E-A-M-S-T-E-R. On Facebook, Thoroughbred Space Teamsters Space Podcast. Hit me up on Instagram, Thoroughbred Teamsters Podcast, all one word. Or if you're long, long-winded like I am, uh, Thoroughbred Teamster at Hotmail.com. Uh, hit me up, let me know what you think. Uh, hope, to, uh, hope to get back to you guys soon. Later.